0: Hello, uh, very warm greetings to you all. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on our podcast, Talking Round North Cyprus. I'm Sarah Palmer. I'm in my Leicestershire home, dreaming of my next trip to the TRNC, just back actually from a week living in a field. Um, I've been camping. uh, So I have to say it is nice to to be back home and looking forward to uh, getting into my bed this evening. Anyway, someone who hasn't uh, been living in a field, he spends most of his days sunning himself in the TRNC is my good friend Roger Barra. Hi there, Rog. So, well, what are we now? End of July must be sort of Warming up where you are, I would guess.
1: Yeah, good good camping weather here, but I have to say, Sarah, you're (laughs) welcome to it. I mean, I gave up with camping many, many years ago. I love my home comforts too much. Yeah, it's pretty warm here, as you can imagine. It's still not blisteringly hot, so we still haven't got like uh, super temperatures. It's 35, 36, and for those of us that live here, during July and August that's actually quite acceptable yes Mm. it's very very hot but it's not silly hot like we've had two or three years running we've had temperatures of 42 43 44 not happening yet fingers crossed
0: well that's good to know that's good to know Um, and that means of course fingers crossed no more of those awful fires that uh, that we've seen Something I wanted to mention. I know a few weeks ago you wrote to a Westminster MP who was about to engage in a meeting with the National Federation of Cypriots, who you described as a racist organisation. You got the bog standard reply from your email. I think we both thought that would be that. But you've actually received a real reply from a real person. Is that right?
1: Well, a a sort of real person, but a real office. Yeah, I'd written to Mr. Cleverly. I think he's the MP for... Graintree. I said, would you have the courage to remind this organisation if you have to meet them of its recent history? I said, but we all have to live in hope, particularly those of us that live in the TRNC and have to put up with Britain's total bias in favour of the Greek side. But you're right, Sarah, I got from the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office mm-hmm. Dear Mr. Roger Barra, thank you for your email to the previous Minister for Europe about the event with the National Federation of Cypriots, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, then you just get the formulaic stuff. The UK government continues to engage actively with Cypriot communities in the UK, meeting with representatives, responding to public communications, and meeting parliamentarians. It goes on through more rubbish. The UK, through both official and ministers, have been engaging with both Cypriot leaders in support of the UN-led settlement process, UN-led settlement process. I, anyway, ultimately, they say for the Greek, Cypriot and Turkish Cypriot leaders to decide on the details of a settlement and the UK as a guarantor power and a friend to all parties. Brackets, especially if you're Greek, will continue to provide support to this UN led process. In other words, complete and utter, can I say this word in a podcast? Yeah. Bollocks. But they did reply in person to my letter and it wasn't just a standard bulk reply. So uh, I'm still glad I wrote it. Yeah. Even though I knew it wouldn't, that you know, you wouldn't get any kind of reply that would. Indicate that Britain is at all biased in this process, yeah. but as I say, yeah. I, I, I'm happy that we got where we went.
0: Well, that's right, and as you say, you, um, you know, you got it, so that's that's really good. But there is some there is some good news this week, isn't there, for the Turkish Cypriot community um, in the UK, all to do with the uh, the Met Police in London. So, um, so what's that about?
1: Oh, this is all the news from our good friend IPEC and uh, the T Vine online newspaper, and it's an apology from the Metropolitan Police about their training manual, which contained unbelievable racial stereotype stuff. So basically what happened was the Met had a training manual and they had in that manual a case study centered on a Turkish Muslim male who in this scenario, was responsible for multiple vile criminal acts. He was described, listen to this, as a racist, drug-dealing, Turkish gangster, murderer, and rapist. And there were graphic details of the crimes he was committing, including murdering a Chinese man using a Gherkin knife. Oh. Also, I, I won't go into all yeah, the, no. the horrible mm-hmm. things. And the same Turkish man was also said to racially abuse his Greek Cypriot neighbours and and tip their disabled son for, from his wheelchair for a laugh. Okay, now this is not a real case study. This is all you know, pretend. But no clear explanation of why the Mets needed to concentrate so many vile attributes in one person, creating an extreme and, and let's face it, quite absurd caricature of a Turk.
0: Yeah, yeah that's all. They they didn't even need, to be honest, to give them a nationality. Absolutely not.
1: You're you're absolutely right. But but the Turkish Police Association, known as the TPA in in the UK, a really great egg called Baroness Hussein Ece. Now, she is a really good egg and uh, she appears a lot on Twitter. She's the Mm. first woman of Turkish Cypriot origin to be a member of either house that she was appointed a liberal Democrat working peer back in 2010. So in the House of Lords, you've got this wonderful Turkish Cypriot supporter, or at least someone who will stand up for the rights. And British-Turkish Cypriot Association were among the British-Turkish community groups and leaders to write to the Met and say, you, you know, this is Turkophobic. This is Islamophobic. You can't do this. There's a load more stuff that you can read in tvine.com. So go there if you want the full story. But, Sarah, the wonderful news is in the past week, the Metropolitan Police Service issued an apology to the Turkish and Turkish separate community over its use of what they call a racially a religiously offensive case study, saying it's very sorry, it's caused so much upset. And they've also made what T Vine called an unexpected move of inviting British Turks to drive its future training and sitting on university classes in a bid to offer further reassurance of our training provision and recruit learning. So not only have they apologized, they said, right, you guys have got to come and, if you like, monitor us
0: yeah, and, yeah. And, and
1: make sure we're okay for the future. Now, of course, a lot of people say, well, it shouldn't have got to this. This is outrageous, but I think this is a, a great result of something that should not have happened. It did happen, and I think the Mets, who, you know, you, you can argue till the cows come home of how on earth they got where they got to, yeah, but at least they yeah. came up trumps with not only an apology, but saying, well, you guys can help us make sure yeah. that we don't do anything stupid again. I don't know what you think, Sarah.
0: Well, yeah, absolutely, and I think, you know, they – the Met police should be integrating into the different communities. I mean, not alienating them like that. So if they do invite Turkish Cypriots to the Met, I mean, you know, they, they should be getting to know them and getting to understand their problems. You know, they're, part, they're a big, big part of London, the Turkish Cypriots. So, um, yeah. yeah, hopefully, you know, they can learn from that. But that's just appalling. I mean, I, you know, whoever wrote it, I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it? You don't know when it was written, but even... Even that doesn't matter. They should have just, you know, as I said, it didn't even need to be a nationality. Whoever you said it about, it's wrong. What, whatever nationality you put in that in that scenario, anyway. But as you say, a half decent outcome, indeed. So, uh, so let's get to our special guest this week, Alper Memet. Now he's an extraordinary Turkish Cypriot. He left his home island at just eight years of age with no English. And he became the first British ambassador from an ethnic background. And he has an extraordinary tale, a great career in immigration, foreign office. And as I said, um, going on to become the first British ambassador from an ethnic background. I got in touch with him, having met a mutual friend from the foreign office. Um, They knew each other because it's sort of quite a small world. And he kindly agreed to uh, chat to me. So, as we always do, I started by asking him about his early life back in what we now call the Turkish Republic of North Cyprus.
2: Childhood in the TRNC. Well, um, the first thing I would say is that the TRNC hadn't been invented in those days. Um, I, I actually left in 1956 as an eight year old. And it was just about the time that um, the insurgency, AOKA bombs started going off. My father had returned from London where he had been since 1950. He he returned in 1955. He was ostensibly going to stay. He'd made a little pile of of dosh that he was going to use to build a, a motel. Then, sort of a few months after he got there... Uh, He he was working for a little while in in customs in Limassol, I think. There was a raid. Soldiers, the British squaddies who were there at the time, suddenly descended on the place. And there they were, told to get up against the wall with their hands up. And there was a chap working with one. He he was serving with the, the military from our village where we were born in, where I was born, Lurujina, now called Akunjular. And my father said, hey, Mehmet, he said, don't you know who I am? And he said, I'm on duty and sort of poked him with the gun. And that was it, really. He came back home after that and said to mum, this is not for us. This is not a place to uh, bring up our son. Um, I'm going to go to London go back to London will you come with me and mum having been on her own for five and a half years bringing me up said you're not going anywhere without me anymore (laughs) I'm not going to let you go to the loo she said without me accompanying you and that was it really we we arrived, funnily enough, arrived on his birthday on the 26th of July, 1956, in London. Wow. And and that was it. But I, I did go to school for a couple of years in Cyprus, so I remember it well. But it, it, it's funny going back now, because there are a few of my contemporaries who never left, even though the village was uh, effectively transplanted to uh, another place after 1974, there were a few of my classmates who who actually stayed and, and they, they're still there. Wow. But the village has has changed a lot. Inevitably, there are only a few hundred people there now, mm. whereas it had grown to a small town uh, even by the time that we had left, although mm. it, it was still pretty primitive in the facilities available, there were there were no made up roads, there was no there was no electricity, there was no there was no gas, there was no running water. Wow. Water was tapped down bottom of the road. So it was it was still pretty um backward in many respects or undeveloped. People were actually surprisingly sophisticated, I suppose, for want of a better word. Um and indeed educated. The younger generation had been educated, unlike the older people, Mm. most of whom, like my grandparents, spoke more Greek than they spoke Turkish, which I suppose was, it, it was symptomatic of the fact that Greek Cyprus was pretty much beginning to dominate and uh, as turkish cypriots will will tell you they i think if not blame if they even if they don't blame the the british uh, for what happened post 55 independence and all that i think that um they do a lot of them do resent the fact that they were not helped mm. they were not supported in the way that they felt that as common citizens of of Cyprus, they they should have been.
0: Yeah. So when you arrived in the UK, as you say, as an eight-year-old, how was that? must have been very different for you. Did you speak any English?
2: No, I didn't. I I spoke no English. We lived in Kennington, arrived the end of July, and we were in Kennington for about three months, I suppose. By Christmas, 56, we moved to Bethnal Green, although I I went to um, a school in Kennington called Keyworth for for a few months, where I I remember there there are photos of, of my class where there's one in particular where the teacher is reading to everyone. Well, I didn't really have a clue what was being said. So instead of listening to her, I'm the only one looking at the camera with my arms folded and beaming.
0: (laughs) So how how quickly did you pick it up? Did you sort of, you know, I mean, I guess when you're immersed in a language, um, you sort of have to, especially as a child, you tend to sort of soak up um, what's going on around you, don't you?
2: It's a good question. I've often wondered, but all I can say is that I remember not being able to speak it, not being able to understand what was going on. And then I did, and I'm not quite sure. At what point that actually happened yeah but i I do remember one of the the issues I faced was having to sit the eleven plus and that was going to happen i because my birthday is in August the twenty eighth of August, I in fact effectively lost a year, and my, my parents tried desperately to get it all put back a year, but no. Rules is rules, and <laughs> that was it. Really, I, I I sat the eleven plus. I suppose it would have been January nineteen fifty nine. But I I do remember that early fifty eight. I my my English was still pretty poor, and then I don't know some miracle must have taken place because uh, I suddenly I I did recall I did learn the language, and I I was able to pass the 11 plus and go to a, a grammar school as they were in those days yeah.
0: so you went to I know you went to university Bristol Polytechnic which is now I think was it called The University of West England or something um, so what did you do there what did you study when you went to um, Bristol I
2: had a good time I think more than
0: anything <laughs> <laughs> Bristol's a good place <laughs> I I did business studies
2: okay but um, I met my wife there, a Welsh girl, and we fell madly in love and oh. <laughs> we we married before we left. In fact, she was only she was barely 1920 and um, I was not quite a year old. And they said it wouldn't last and here we are 54 years on, 55 years nearly. We're <laughs> still together.
0: Oh, amazing. That's lovely. But it
2: did. I, I finished, and we were my father-in-law. He had a small building business, and I worked for him for a while, laboring. I, guess, I think it was the hardest job I'd ever done. He was going to uh, show me what real work was. <laughs> you know, all, it, it, all, all this nonsense of of studying and being paid for to do it and have a good time. He thought, no, you've, you've got to show being a, a, a true red Labour man very much. Um, <laughs> this this was South Wales in, yeah. in the 60s post-war. South Wales was bastion, still is, of, of the Labour Party. And my wife's grandmother was actually one of the founder members of the the Labour Party in that part of Wales. So all, all steeped, all mining communities <laughs> and grandparents-in-law. Mm. One died in a pit accident in the 1930s, I think. Uh, the other one, another pit accident, was r- retired when he was in his late 50s. Mm. So it, it was all... It was it was a different world to the one that I'd really I I came from very much a rural environment. Although my my grandparents were were both farmers, of one another. One was a sort of a real commoner garden farmer with um, animals and growing things. The other one, he would um, hire vineyards and. Uh, he, he would then produce wine from the, the grapes harvested, and share any profits made with mm. the landowner, and that that was the sort of background. So from that to uh, the very industrial post-industrial revolution, still mm. South Wales was was very odd
0: yeah. in
2: many respects. Mm. But my mother-in-law, God rest her soul, she um she was at the hairdressers. One Saturday morning, as one was in those days, and she um, she came home and said to my wife, oh, look at this, darling. She said, um, I saw this ad in the paper, and I, I don't know if it was the Express or the Mail, probably the Express in South Wales, and it was the keys to the kingdom. Uh, do you have a flair for languages? Do you? Would you like to interview ba- a banker one minute and a Swedish au pair the next I thought hmm Swedish au pair (laughs) I got your interest Uh, I I I just but I I wasn't really interested but I did apply the the role of a an immigration officer I I applied I applied for a couple of other jobs including one to um to work as a, a steward on something called Cambrian Airways which went bust soon after, but <laughs> I applied for a job then, was turned down by them just about the time that I heard that I'd been accepted into the Immigration Service. Wow. And that was it, really. I yeah. went to Dover, worked, I was based in Dover for nine years uh, before applying to go overseas as a, as a visa officer, and clearance officer, and went to Nigeria, where I worked for four years. And uh, That was it, really. Um, but I decided I didn't want to uh, go back to stamping passports yeah. and ended up in the foreign office.
0: Yeah. Funnily you should say about the advert in the paper, because that's exactly how I got into the foreign office. My mum found an advert in the Daily Mail and I was doing my A-levels at the time. I was doing English, French and Spanish and I wanted to travel. And she said, Oh, look, there's this advert. And it says, would you like to see the world, you know, and or whatever it however it was worded. And again, I applied and I thought, Oh, well, okay, we'll see where it goes. And but it was an advert in one of the advert in the paper that got me into the into the Foreign Office as well. So that's, uh, uh, that's quite funny. So how did you square doing immigration work with being an immigrant yourself? Did that help?
2: It helped in the sense that, I got to do a lot of the sort of jobs and the sort of work that caught the eye of those above me. Uh, Because I spoke both Turkish and Greek, uh, in the early 70s, there were a lot of unskilled workers, frankly, farmers in the main, who were being recruited by agencies in Turkey in particular, but all over um southern Europe really, not not just in Turkey, but Turkey in particular, that I saw because I spoke the language. So all, all these farmers really um would suddenly turn up claiming to be experienced wazers or in the rag trade. And and they were it was cheap labour, frankly. But we had the rules that they had to demonstrate that they actually qualified for uh, these jobs and obtained work permits quite correctly. But the fact was that many of them, frankly, didn't have a clue about mm. waiting or yeah. uh, sewing or, or whatever. And, and that it was relatively straightforward to establish the fact that they just didn't qualify. But I did, it did mean that I, I spoke a lot of Turkish and. And a lot of Greek, Greece. Mm. This was before Greece was in the European Union, of course, joined the the common market. So both languages, and I I sat a couple of examinations and and got through. So I did a lot of work involving Turks and Greeks. Um, Um, I would act as an interpreter for the police, for customs, as well as doing my own work. But I, I would because there weren't so many Turkish speakers in those days, um, I would find myself going around the country to people who'd been held and no one could get through to them or find out exactly what, what they were up to. Yeah.
0: So you, as you say, you moved into the uh, diplomatic service and um, came up through the ranks. So how did you feel about being appointed one of the first of two British ambassadors from a, an ethnic minority background? Because that, that was uh, quite unusual.
2: Dare I say that I was the only one from the diplomatic service? And you, you, you will understand this, Sarah, from uh, the way things worked. But there was a second chap. He was, in fact, from the MOD. He was in the Cabinet Office uh, temporarily and he applied for the job that he got as head of mission from another government department. He then transferred to the Foreign Office. But I, I was already a fully fledged member of the diplomatic service when I applied, so I would argue that <laughs> I was the first pucker <laughs> diplomat who was first-generation immigrant, effectively. Yeah, but I, I agree. That, <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> to be honest, in the Foreign Office in those days, there were those who look, would look down their noses at the fact that someone came from the Colonial Office and wasn't really foreign office as such and that so there was a lot of snobbery and
0: oh yes <laughs> but but with that I mean were you always you always proud of your your Turkish Cypri- Cypriot heritage I mean did you promote it during your career did you have to explain it to people
2: you can't ignore your name you can't ignore your looks you can't ignore your background you can't ignore the sort of things that have gone into making you the person you are so i never at any point sought to sort of disguise the fact that i was an immigrant i arrived here with speaking no english and really from from a muslim family not sort of practicing as you know most uh, Turkish Cypriots, uh, devout as they may be, they're not the sort that go to mosque uh, five times a day or pray five times a day and whatever and that's the sort of secular but nevertheless Muslim society that I was born into i mean once once you come to another country and you adopt it as your country, I think At that point, if you're going to truly integrate and become a part of the country that you've adopted, then I think it it behoves you to do that seriously and commit to that country, Mm. which I did. Committed, I am still totally committed to the United Kingdom. I'm an ardent monarchist and I know a great deal more about the history of this country than than I do about any other. But my parents, my family, they they came here at a much later stage in their lives. They were much older. I think that they always harbored that feeling of we will go home one day, we will return home one day. At least my father did. But then when he had the opportunity of doing that in the mid-70s, He was quite friendly with people like um, Ralph Dengtash. He was involved in the community in in London in the early 50s. And he was offered opportunities to return to Cyprus to, to make the TRNC work. And at that point, he and my mother said, well, look, our children are here. My sister born here, I had grown up and married here, had my own children here their grandchildren, what is it that they would be going back to as opposed to what would they be leaving behind? Mm-hmm. And at that stage, I think um, for them, England was home. And it always was England. As, as you, you know, going around the world, people will always refer to the United Kingdom of Britain as England. Um, yeah. And for them, it was, it was England. And I, my father was particularly committed to the country. And I, I I remember one sort of lunchtime gathering around the table where sort of there are around 30 people, different members of the family. And it was when my father first returned to Cyprus in 1955. His brother, my uncle, had been in Australia for about the same time as my father had Spent in England, and there was a discussion going on. And there was a there was I as a seven year old, a god listening, and they were debating the the virtues of England and Australia. And I, I remember my father really speaking quite passionately about this country and why it was the best and why it was vastly superior to what had, after all, been a colony yeah. um, about Australia. So, you know, all, all that sort of thing, although all of us uh, were and are, we know where we hail from. Uh, and I, I'm very proud of the, particularly of the village I was born in, which I think is uh, produced some of the finest people <laughs> ever.
0: <laughs>
2: it's It's slightly disparaged and... Oh. denigrated by some people <laughs> uh, it, they sort of looked down their noses at the at the way Turkish is spoken in or by the older generation not now but the fact is that it was probably one of the most dynamic villages in Cyprus yeah bilingual there were there were a lot of Greek Cypriots there was a lot of friendship between Greek and Turkish Cypriot In the village, uh, there was even a church, um, which, again, was partly the reason why the younger, more more nationalist-inclined thinking young men felt that gradually the the Turkishness of the village was being eroded and would um, effectively be overtaken and, and buried by Greek Orthodoxy, and in fact, in in the twenties, I think the priest at the time was actually murdered. Uh, now, no one ever established mm. who did it. There will be those who are still convinced that it was somehow the, the sort of Turkish nationalists who were behind that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, it could just as easily have been someone who was trying to uh, do something that would work against the interests of the, the yeah. Turkish Cypriot. So yeah. uh, I, I honestly don't, don't know. But that, 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 again, was the sort of background um, to, to why I went to kiss hands with the monarch, having already been involved with the royal family Before that, I went off very happy and proud to be serving my queen.
0: That was Ald Mehmet. And if you think that is anywhere near the end of his life story, then you've got another thing coming. So next week, you can hear the second part of that interview where we discuss his time in Iceland and how he came to be an ambassador, how he became to be the British ambassador, as I say, first one from an ethnic background.
1: Next time you'll hear... His involvement with Migration Watch. Now, when I first read that Alp was about a great thing called Migration Watch, I yeah. honestly thought he was a bird watcher. And this was all about, <laughs> you know, monitoring <laughs> birds who come to a certain area. As my big brother Henry from Immigration reminded me, it's a huge thing, this Migration Watch. And next week, you will hear his passionate views on immigration and what's happening in the English Channel right now. It's really, really worth a listen. And uh, both you and me can't wait to let everybody hear that.
0: Yes, indeed. Yeah. Oh, that's funny, that migration watch. That's very good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. With a pair of binoculars right now. So, yes. So we will put that out as our next podcast, the second part of that interview. I guarantee it's not to be missed. A lovely, lovely chap. And... um He has said that we'll have to meet up and I said only if it's in Cyprus and he said yes absolutely Uh, (laughs) but we look forward to that so um, I hope you enjoyed that first part of the interview without Mehmet so uh, i think that's about it then rog for today so thank you very much indeed to everyone for listening in um, if you want to get in touch with us you can do please do we are on facebook and twitter just look for talking Round north cyprus you can always email us as well trnc.podcast at gmail.com i'm sarah palmer
1: and i'm roger Barra. i love you all thank you for joining us we'll talk again very very soon